You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the Gearbox. And what the Gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the go wild community is using in the field what products they're using but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products there's you, there's a shopping function on it so Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. High tech may be cool, but craftsmanship is king. And I want to highlight a family business called Mercy Supply. Mercy Supply is a leatherwork and canvas and wax duck clothing company. They make accessories like bags, wallets, and aprons. In fact, I gave Rusty a call and he put together a custom order for me. I've got 60s vintage camo trimmed out in oxblood leather and copper rivets. This apron just is sick looking. I love it. It's bomb-proof construction, stitched really tight, and you're never going to be able to beat it up. And actually, the more that you use it, the more that you abuse it, the better it wears. So head on over to mercysupply.com. Everything is made in Byron Center, Michigan, hand-done in the good old U.S. of A. If you tell them that Huntivore sent you, he won't know what you're talking about because I didn't tell him that I was going to make him a commercial. But anyway, head over to mercysupply.com. Their stuff is built to stand up. Welcome to the Hunt of War Podcast. Powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 50, a toast to wild game and good spirits with Mammoth Distilling. Huntivore has finished another year of bringing you wild game related material. What better way to celebrate than with a drink and a toast? To get some inspiration, Nick is joined by Stuart and Colin of Mammoth Distilling in Northern Michigan. The group discusses the spirits we love to drink when celebrating, contemplating, and carrying on tradition. So grab a drab and enjoy. Before we begin, I just want to say that Huntivore is celebrating its second year as a podcast. Who knew anyone could talk about food and wild game for that long? It really has been an awesome trip to share my own experience and my culinary journey with all of you and being able to bring on some awesome guests to teach us and challenge us. 
I want to thank those guests and the friends that I've made along the way for being able to pour into our own journeys here. I want to thank Dan Johnson and the whole Sportsman's Nation crew for bringing us on and being able to be a part of an awesome podcast network. And of course, you, the listeners. I mean, if it, if it wasn't for you guys tuning in, it would be me rambling to myself. It's a real treasure to find folks who are passionate about the outdoors and who are also serious about their table fare. So I'm celebrating the accomplishments of Huntivore, and I'm raising a glass. And I'm also looking forward to this next year of sharing our hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. Well, hey, folks. Welcome to the 50th episode. For a lot of you, you've joined me on for uh, 50 episodes. That's 100 weeks, and it's it seems to be a real celebration. At least I feel really accomplished here. Two years under my belt as a podcaster, and I thought nothing better than to have guys that would help celebrate by the guys who produce the drinks that we celebrate with or drinks that we use to just continue traditions that we love. I am with the guys over here at Mammoth Distilling. Uh, I got um, Colin, their main distiller, and I got Stuart, their head of marketing. Is that correct, Stuart? Head of hospitality director. I run the uh, the tasting rooms, and Colin runs the uh, distillery. Gotcha. So we got front of office and back of office here with us. So, right. gentlemen, cheers. Thanks for uh, joining us uh, this afternoon. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Oh, I also forgot to mention that we're also joined by second comer, uh, Drew Youngdike. Drew uh, is kind of helping be the liaison here. So, Drew, welcome aboard. Thank you. Yeah, pretty uh, stoked to have a, a company based in my hometown, uh, on the Hunt of War podcast, so happy you let me uh, join in. Good deal. So my story starts with uh, with Mammoth, is that my wife and I found a way to escape up to Traverse City. Um, she's got an office up there with the business, that, or the work that she does. She travels a lot throughout the state and has an office up there in uh, Traverse City. And had to do uh, work on Friday and then had to stay the weekend to then follow up on Monday. So we planned it out that we were going to ship the kids off to Grandma and Grandpa's for the weekend. And then I would join her up there in Traverse City. And we spent, uh, Friday night we spent pretty chill. Uh, I think we went to just a couple places and then ended up back at the hotel and then we went on Saturday for the big excursion all around town. And we found ourselves the later part of the night walking back to our hotel. And I was like, you know what? I, I need a quiet one. I need a drink to just settle me down. And we ended up walking into this door of what we thought was going to be uh, kind of a loud barbecue style bar. And I was like, yeah, I'll just have a, a beer to settle the night. And we walk into this tasting room and there's ivory. There's like a uh, real furry carpet and there's just furs everywhere. We settle up to a seat. I had one of the most incredible cocktails that I've had. The atmosphere was incredible. And I ended up walking out with a fifth 
and I'm looking at the bottle. I hadn't even seen the name of the place, and the place was called Mammoth. And it instantly, I had a connection and just loved that whole atmosphere of the tasting room that you guys had put together. When it comes to making a good bourbon or a good uh, spirit, it's a lot different than just a regular old beer. Am I right, Colin? Yeah, absolutely. Beer's beer's the first step in making spirits, but there's a lot more that comes after. So, I mean, if we go back to uh, high school science, we understand that sugar is made or sugar is used uh, by a yeast, which forms uh, an alcohol. And then from there, that's where uh, you can then refine it down. And that's as far as we we usually get, at least in in high school. And then it goes a step further. I believe there's a lot of folks that got interested after uh, the Moonshiners show came on uh, History Channel. A lot more people probably (laughs) dove into what you're doing. But you're taking pretty much that same idea of, of a mash and like basically boiling it down until you get a really refined alcohol. Walk us through how a still does its job. Yeah. So like you were saying, um, you know, the, the process has been around for thousands of years now um, and been perfected over time. And we kind of do it just how everyone's done it. Um, for years. So, um, you know, we take, uh, we do a lot of grain to glass distilling. So we start with a bunch of local ingredients, primarily corn, lots of rye, um, a little bit of barley here and there. Um, and we mash that and through the use of heat and enzymes, we take the starches and the raw grain, um, and turn that into fermentable sugar. And just like you were saying, we take yeast, add that to the mash, um, that eats it and turns it into alcohol. So, first step is essentially making beer. Um, but then from there on out, um, we take that mash, pump it over to the still. And the whole concept of distillation is that alcohol has a lower boiling point than water does. So by bringing that mash up just below boiling or just below water's boiling point, we're able to vaporize the alcohol that's in suspension in the liquid, um, and then recollect that. So that's kind of the rough process of distillation. Now, I see some of these distills, and they've got several chambers that the higher, the higher that the alcohol goes, the more pure it becomes. Or is it pretty much just a, a one-step job? Because are, are you pulling off basically just white lightning off of, a, off of every, every job that you're working with, and then that point things change? Or is there different levels that you end up taking that alcohol? Yeah, there's actually different levels that we take that alcohol, depending on which product we're making. Um, we've actually got a really, really cool still. Um, it's a custom hand-manufactured still from Germany, um, but it's a hybrid still. So usually stills are kind of configured to do one thing or another thing, whereas ours, you can run it in multiple configurations and pretty much make anything off of it. So but you're talking about the columns there um, with all the plates in there. Um, and that's usually primarily used for making vodka because um, every time the vapor goes up and hits one of those plates, it cools down naturally just by ambient temperature. And we call that reflux. So that alcohol hits that colder plate, condenses back into liquid form and falls back down to the still. So every time it's going up and hitting a plate, it's getting purer and purer and we're removing more water from that process. Um, which is great for making vodka because you want a super high proof, really, really clean, neutral, flavorless spirit. 
Um, but when we're talking about whiskey, um, we actually don't want to do that. Uh, whiskey is really benefited by um, not as clean of a spirit. Um, a lot of the things that are bound chemically with the water that you remove when you're making vodka are actually what contributes to flavor um, down the road. It's more reactive with the, um, the sugars in the barrel, um, the tannins. So those are the flavors that we're looking to pull out with whiskey. So when we make whiskey, we actually run it um, like a pot still. So like you see in Moonshiners, pretty much just right up through the top of the still and over to the condenser. So... Gotcha. It's those impurities that end up, like you're saying, give it the the flavor that we're going for. So depending on the amount of barley or the amount of corn that goes in, that's then going to then come out in the said taste. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. If you're making vodka in the columns, you wouldn't really taste anything but pure ethanol. But we we like flavor in whiskey. So that that we do. Do you find (laughs) even like if you make the same like I'll go through a recipe. I, you know, I've got a couple recipes that I just, I hold close to my heart. I've almost, I've got them memorized and I, I know the ingredient. I know the time, I know the temperature and I follow it the same, but yet the result does have some varying, uh, differences, whether it may have a different taste that comes out or it's crispier. Do you find that the same thing with, with making a whiskey is that, as much as you are creating a science here and you are following a procedure, do you come out with one batch being a little bit different than another? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many variabilities in what we do um, all the way from the get-go. I mean, you can pull different grain off different farms and get different flavor right from there. So every step of the way, um, you encounter a little bit more variability. a lot of what we do, we try to control as much of that variability as we can. Um, but again, kind of counterintuitively, if you make the exact same spirit every single time, um, you don't end up with a lot of diversity in your barrels. Um, and barrels age out differently. So when you go to blend whiskey, if you had just the same stuff every time, it, it you wouldn't have a lot to blend with blending is is more or less like like painting with a palette of paints you want a little bit of this and a little bit of this and putting those together creates you know this flavor and so on and so forth so if it's dead nuts every single time you're probably going to end up with a little bit more of a boring whiskey down the line or it's going to be a little more difficult to blend and create um some of those different flavors gotcha gotcha so you're almost looking for as you're as you're making a recipe, like I am going to alter this batch a little bit different than the one previous, and then that's to then have these different casts or or barrels to work from at that point. Yeah, we're we're definitely always trying different things to get different results. Um, recently, we dropped the barrel entry proof that we put barrels away at. Um, that's been our most recent experiment. So we've been adding more water before it goes into the barrels. Um, pull out a little bit more of the sugar from the barrel earlier on so yeah variability um although counterintuitive sounding it's it's actually kind of a good thing i i know we've been we've been jumping on on whiskey here a little bit and that's not just what you guys produce there's a there's a whole wide range of alcohols or of spirits that you guys are creating um 
I guess uh, I mean I look at gin and I know it's made with is it is it really made with um the it, it's made with berries at that point am I yeah. right liquor berries yeah so in in another common misconception with gin too is that it's it's fermented from juniper berries and that's really not the case usually gin is vodka to start out with so generally corn as a base for the distillate and then it's distilled through a basket that you macerate juniper berries in and so the hot vapor passing through that collects that juniper flavor and ends up as gin Gotcha, gotcha. Because I'm thinking, like, that's here's somebody out there picking a whole lot of juniper berries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Okay. We've we've jumped onto the gin. I don't. I'm I'm a big bourbon fan. I say big bourbon fan. Like, I'm not that old of a guy, and I've really just kind of discovered uh, bourbon maybe about five years ago. Uh, actually, my first bourbon that I bought was I. I won our fantasy football league and we all had a pot that went into it and I ended up taking first place. And so I was like, well, now I need to take this money and not just spend it, but flaunt it as much as I can in front of the other participants. So I ended up, I ended up getting, having enough to be able to get a really cheap 22 that I love to use. And it's what I use for my squirrel hunting all the time. And uh, what I thought was going to be, Actually, it still is. It's one of my one of my go to bourbons. But anyway, I bought a fifth of bourbon, and that was the picture that I sent to everybody. It was me in a big armchair holding my twenty two and bourbon, just being like, "Thanks, fellas, I appreciate it." Um, so bourbon's where I I'm I'm really kind of excited about. Um, and there's a lot that goes with bourbon, and the fact that as a guy on the outside, like, is there a difference between a Kentucky bourbon by name and a regular bourbon by name is there because you can only make a specific Kentucky bourbon in Kentucky. Am I correct? Um, actually, another misconception. Kentucky really tried hard to get what they call an appellation on bourbon. So, an appellation is is a regional definition of a spirit or a wine, um, no different than like champagne can only be made in Champagne, France, so on and so forth. Um, and Kentucky tried really hard to get that passed, but we're not able to do it. Hence why we in Michigan can make bourbon. Um, but anywhere you make bourbon um, or whiskey or anything, any age spirit, uh, you're going to have variability, um, mainly coming from your warehouse. Um, you know, different temperatures, different seasonal fluctuation as, you know, things heat up and cool back down, your liquids expanding and contracting in those barrels, pushing it into the wood, pulling it back out of the wood. Um, so again, it's, it's another one of those variabilities, um, that create good spirits. Um, and I think Kentucky is really lucky with their climate because they have a little bit more fluctuation in temperature. So I think their stuff ages up a little bit faster down there. Um, but yeah, I, I, you could never make a Kentucky bourbon in Michigan, um, which is also kind of cool. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's nice to produce something that's specific to your region. Good deal. I'm glad to know that they can't just take the name bourbon and then we have to have like a uh, barrel whiskey as the name, like right. that every, <laughs> everybody can still have their, their bourbon from their specific state. So thank you for clearing that up, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> 
Appreciate that. Um, and I think I think Kentucky definitely wants everyone to think bourbon just comes from Kentucky. That's good for them. But. Gotcha. Sorry, guys. You can have your horse race, but that's about it. You're going to keep that. <laughs> um, so with that process of bourbon, uh, is it a long age? So, okay, we've, we've got our alcohol that we've made, and it's um, – not necessarily a, a high alcohol point, this, or it's the, what you've just pulled off. It hasn't gone through all the steps of the still at that point. It's just pretty much, it's been vaporized, it's pulled over, and that gets put into a, a barrel. Is, is that barrel uh, charred on the inside? What's the preparation for one of these whiskeys, to, or this basic uh, white whiskey, to then turn into a bourbon? So bourbon by law... Um has a couple definitions. Um, so starting from your mash bill, bourbon has to be at least 51% corn. Um, generally, uh, people use a lot higher percentages of corn um, than 51. 51 is kind of just like the base limit for that. Um, bourbon also can't be distilled over 180 proof. Um, so like I was talking about earlier, you, you don't want to take and make vodka and put that in a barrel because it wouldn't taste like really anything right um so by law they don't want you to distill you know your spirits up above 180 proof so you retain some flavor in your original spirit um and then also by law you're not i was talking about entry proof um the proof that we put the clear spirit into the barrel um by law you can't put bourbon into a barrel over 125 proof so even if you pull it off the still at, you know, 160 or below or somewhere in that range, um, you have to proof it down with water before it goes into the barrel, um, which was originally designed as a taxation thing um, early on. But um, those are kind of the first defining steps of making bourbon. But then moving forward, again, by law, um, bourbon has to be aged in brand new virgin white American oak every single time. So once a barrel has been used, it can no longer be used to make bourbon. It can be used to make whiskey or something else, but it's got to be a brand new barrel every time. And those barrels are generally charred. So and it's multiple levels of char starts uh, at one, goes all the way to five. So, Gotcha. And what's the length of time that it has to sit in, in one of these barrels? So there is no defined length of time um, that classifies bourbon um, by law again um, yeah, as you can probably tell there's a lot of laws regarding what we do <laughs> what's, I keep, I keep what's that, that body that always seems to atf yeah they seem to oh, yeah, set a lot of things yeah. up UTV, yeah they're, they're all after us man <laughs> um, so yeah there's no defined length of time um, that qualifies a bourbon to be in a barrel um, except that it has to be passed through wood um, so a barrel can be really aged to anyone's liking, um, but general rule of thumb, the longer you let your whiskey sit in a barrel, the better it's going to be. So um, there's a lot of things that people do to get around uh, long periods of aging. Um, you know, the longer you let something sit, the more overhead you really have as a business model. And that's kind of unattractive for a lot of people, but um, for us makers, the longer you can let it sit, generally the better. Gotcha. So do you have like a, a still house or a, a, a barrel house that you've got several of these put away or is it just in the in the back of the, the storeroom that you have them just 
Or is that what the table was? It's like there was a barrel and then a piece of glass on top. Is that where you've got some of it stashed away? <laughs> Uh, we, we've got barrels stashed all over, to be honest. But uh, no, we uh, we actually have two buildings. We have one building that's specifically the still house. Um, so where all the distillation, mashing, um, blending, all that goes on. And then we have another building that's uh, just our rick house where all the barrels live. Um, and we've probably got nearly a thousand barrels stashed away in the rick house. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to know that there's a supply waiting that even even amongst our our food shortage and our meat shortage, we've still got somewhere we can at least get whiskey and bourbon from. Absolutely. We've been packing it away for years. <laughs> this is kind of a warm feeling, right? Just to know somewhere out there in the woods in northern Michigan, there's a thousand barrels of bourbon just sitting there <laughs> aging, taking on flavor, waiting for us. I love it. I, I would say I'd help out with the white oak situation as far as making barrels, but I've all I've got red oak everywhere. That seems to be my my spot that I have on my five acres is is all red oak. So sorry, Colin, I can't help you out with with making more barrels. Um, but yeah, on this trip that I was talking about, um, I went up and I was in the tasting room, and this is probably where Stewart's going to come in big time. Is that as much as the front of Mammoth is being a distillery and creating these spirits, you guys have an immense amount of recipes for not just throwing, you know, ice cubes in a glass with some whiskey, but you have a whole line of cocktails that you guys have made up. Um, what, what goes behind making a specialty cocktail? I bet, well, I mean, there's the, the basics, um, and there's you know, the there traditional are, ones, but at the same time, like you guys really had some interesting flavors going on. Well, you know, one of the benefits for, um, you know, really kind of the artistic arm of the tasting rooms and designing things is, you know, the fact that we're a distillery tasting room. So theoretically, anything that we combine with cocktails, we're supposed to produce ourselves. Um, you know, obviously we'll have soda we've got a really nice relationship with northwoods they do a ginger beer specifically for us really spicy but with opening the tasting rooms you're somewhat forced to use you know a little bit of uh you know artistic talent you know a little bit of creativity and try to figure out what you can make uh to have on hand to make cocktails so i i mean you know for those that don't know that are listening, Colin, you know, is not only our head distiller, but he was our original tasting room manager when we had one location. So it somewhat started with Colin and his staff and we've just kind of carried it on, you know, and there's some things that, you know, we're just frankly poaching from other people, you know, uh, <laughs> we're not going to take complete credit for designing everything. Um, but then you find, you know, our gin is so unique uh, and has such a unique taste profile. It really lets you think outside the box on, you know, bringing some things into the game that, you know, you wouldn't maybe anticipate on a standard gin. Um, you know, so it's really just having the confidence in the product um, and taking the time to, you know, throw some things around and see what sticks, uh, what makes the staff happy and, and then what our fans get enthusiastic about. Yeah. The the one cocktail I wanted, and this one I'll, you'll probably be able to tell me exactly the name about it, is um, I came in and I just I wanted a cocktail. I wanted something different, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was literally your whiskey 
and it had pineapple juice. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. That's the um, one right there. And, and there's a good example, you know, of the that's one of our original fan favorite recipes where you're trying to come up with something to blend the whiskey that's a little bit different. And you have the, instead of buying uh, a pre-made mixer, uh, it is coming up with a recipe to literally blend the jalapeno for the little bit of spice and you get, you know, the sweetness from the pineapple and it just works. It, it does. I, it literally was like a backyard barbecue in a glass and I had to order a water to go along with my spicy drink. That's, I needed something to cool it down like that, that jalapeno oil just took over. But at the same time, like I just kept coming back for more on, on that cocktail. And I, that's probably something that people don't see every day is a savory cocktail. They always expect the fruity sweet ones, but to throw in well, savory it, was out of the, out of my mind. And I'd say that what kind of caught me off guard or I wouldn't have expected, you know, years ago in, in the cocktail market is absolutely right. How much people have got creative with spice. I, I mean, our other most popular summertime drink is called La Picante. Uh, and that's literally muddled jalapenos uh, with the vodka, a little bit of simple syrup, uh, a little bit of uh, lime. And it's just got just the right amount of spice where, you know, you could easily knock down six, seven of them, uh, you know, before you want to call it quits. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just I kept coming back for more on on those. So, yeah, it's it was good. Stuart, explain a little bit about the, the story of how Mammoth got started. I mean, there's this this nuance that I have just, I don't know, living in Michigan and just knowing that in, you know, back in the Ice Age, there were literally mastodons and mammoths running around and grazing on, on basically where we're standing. And I think that was one of the allures that I have. The name just got me excited to even, even purchase a bottle. What's the, you know, what's the, the story behind mammoth distilling so the you know story behind the name uh nothing interesting to tell you the truth and and you know essentially when the owners were trying to figure out what to name the the distillery you know the the onus was on producing whiskey you wanted age on, on your whiskey and bourbon type products so they had been thinking about something that represented age at the time was right around the time that they had found uh, mammoth bones on Beaver Island, I, I believe. So it was kind of in the news and it just kind of all worked together. Um, I used to years ago kind of embellish a story that just to be funny. And, you know, I, I used to tell people that the owners were on the expedition to, to Beaver Island. And, and we've got one of the things you pointed out when your trip to Traverse city is we've got our lounge area, which we've got these mammoth chairs and they're these big wood chairs with like fake mammoth fur and it just fits the motif and they're unbelievably comfortable really sought after and i had told the fake story to a group and uh explained to the lady who asked that the fur she was actually sitting on they had stolen and it was actually mammoth fur <laughs> and and we all had a good chuckle everyone in the group because you know obviously it wasn't ten thousand year old fur um, but then I received like a terrible Yelp review about how gross it was that we were allowing people to, to sit on, you know, dead mammoth fur. So 
now it's just the boring story about, you know, just trying to come up with something that, uh, aged, I think is the safer bet. Gotcha. You know what? I like the other one. I would have been like, oh yeah, I'm sitting on fur right now. And after I've had yeah. a buffle, couple whiskey uh, tangos, I am yeah definitely believing that story. <laughs> you know, but, and then the actual story behind the distillery is, you know, one of the things that kind of drew me and I, I'm, I think I speak for Colin too, to the job is, is really the passion that, you know, our owner, Chad Munger and his wife, Tracy Hickman have for the community, you know, essentially they were both starting to, to look at early retirement. They, you know, had been personally successful with some life choices and, you know, as people that kind of summered in Northern Michigan, they were really looking for a way to integrate themselves with the community. And, you know, at the time they thought, well, what a better place or a better opportunity than starting a business and we can employ local people. Uh, you know, we can kind of become, you know, part of the community. And so Chad actually went back to college and, and went to Michigan State and enrolled in the distilling program. Uh, you know, there he had the, the benefit of meeting our original head distiller uh, who Colin initially trained under, Ari Sussman. And the idea was kind of born, uh, why don't we do a distillery? And, you know, I think at the initial stage, it was, it was literally kind of a thought of, you know, we'll do something to integrate ourselves in the community. We'll, it'll keep us busy. It'll be, you know, kind of a second career with the intention of it not really, you know, not really taking up a lot of time. And, and soon after, you know, Chad kind of realized he had a passion we were able to produce really good products and it kind of blossomed from there, you know, and, and I think one of the things that drew me to the company was having somebody that, you know, in ownership that was more concerned about the initial taste profile and how we were making things and how we were going to do it. Uh, you know, that was refreshing to me where a lot of times, whether by circumstance or, or kind of design, you know, people are more concerned with just having money flow in the door and, you know, maybe, maybe not making things, you know, locally, maybe not, you know, using other local companies, but his real kind of mission statement was that it was going to be a local company that, you know, supported local to produce, you know, local spirits. And it was just kind of something that is easy to get behind. And I really respected that from the start. What you said, too, is that he wanted to be a, a company that was really involved with the community and the local area. And I think that has been really pronounced. Um, I think we just touched on it earlier. Either we were recording or not recording. Um, but touching on the idea that you guys shut down uh, production of spirits uh, for, during this COVID time. And you guys then transitioned into creating sanitizer in your stills uh, to then be able to then be able to send out to uh, factories or hospitals that, that needed this stuff. Tell me about the process. And this is where my, where Colin jumps in. Um, well, yeah. And I will say that, you know, Colin has not gotten enough credit in my opinion that, you know, not only were we the first people in Michigan to do it, but it, it, if I'm not mistaken, we are really the first distillery outside of Washington state and, Colin had the, the insight that when COVID hit Washington State hard, 
that it was going to be something that the community needed. And, you know, we were lucky enough because he jumped on it so early to form some relationships, to be able to, to produce it to the point we did. Um, and, you know, before I turn it over to Colin, one of the things that, you know, I've been really pleased with and, and proud of, you know, since this started was not only were we donating thousands of gallons, you know, through all this, but the whole time we had our, our tasting rooms open, you know, seven hours a day. And we were allowing people that couldn't afford to purchase sanitizer to come in and fill up for free every single day, you know, whether they, they, they purchased anything or just came in for it. Um, and that was something that we're still doing to, to, to today. Um, and you know, having, having people behind you that are more concerned with the community than revenue is something not everyone's lucky enough to work for. But yeah, Colin, Colin should take a bow if anybody listening, uh, could actually see him because, you know, what he did didn't only really benefit the company, but it benefited Northern Michigan. I have to agree with that. And I, I think, you know, Stuart's a awesome dude and he gives me so much credit for everything, but it was really a, really a company wide effort. I mean, there wasn't one person in this company that hasn't really stuck their neck out and put everything forward. Um, and I think that starts from top up in this company, which again is, is one of the most refreshing things. Um, you know, our owners are so pro community that, you know, it's, it's just kind of in our, our natural being to think that way. Um, and that's how everyone who works for us kind of just ends up, you know, we just, we just look out for the best that we can do. But yeah, about two months ago, we, uh, you know, we, we realized that there was a really high demand for sanitizer and no one was able to get access to it. Um, you know, store shelves were empty and, um, it just, it was, everything was really in dire straits. And, uh, Frankly, it was uh, our owner's sister who sent me the original post of the distillery in Washington that was doing sanitizer. Um, and we said, hey, look, we've got ethanol sitting around. We, you know, people need the stuff. So let's, let's do it. And I mean, literally probably 20,000 gallons of sanitizer later, we're, uh, we're here. And, you know, it was super awesome to, to, be able to take care of our community in that way. I mean, it's, it's the most rewarding thing has been seeing people feeling taken care of by what we're doing. So 20,000 gallons. That's incredible. Well, and that's not just Northern Michigan where you can get that too. Cause I know you can get that down where I live in, in Ann Arbor through the tea house. Are there other places that are able to get mammoth uh, sanitizer in that same way? Yeah, we uh we have a online store going, and I think it's available for purchase nationwide. So if you hop on our Stuart can probably confirm that, but yeah, if you hop on our website, uh, uh, we've got currently got a link that will link you to you know some mammoth merchandise. Uh, for the most part, you know uh, we are donating some profits uh, on our social distance T-shirt. Actually, a hundred percent of the profit on the social distance T-shirt is being split between. Uh, the Michigan uh, Bartending Association and uh, a local association started by the Good Bowl 
which goes to hospitality workers in northern Michigan. Uh, for the most part, you know, the bulk of sales on the, the other mammoth-related items are, are just going to, to pay our, our staff members. You know, that's the other thing, you know, through all this, Colin's absolutely right. You know, the, the hard work that, that the staff, you know, really stepped up where, you know, no one would have faulted anyone for, you know, taking a step back. And, you know, for our staff to just rally around the company and the company to be able to, you know, continue to pay everyone through this, you know, I think is really just a testament to kind of the core belief system of our ownership and, you know, something that, you know, I feel pretty blessed, uh, you know, that we've all been put in the position or, or in the position that we're in right now with, with what we're dealing with. You know, there's a lot of people that um, are struggling and there's going to be a lot of people that, you know, are struggling in the future for what's going on. Yeah. And it's awesome to see that, that through the work of this, that man, like everybody's trying to figure out what, what they can do. How, how can I help? And to just be sitting on, like you said, that, that 20,000 gallons of ethanol and not just, well, let's, let's put it into more spirits because people are going to want to be staying home and getting and drinking. But at the same time, now it's being put to work at our front lines. Um, that that's a, a beautiful thing that you guys have been able to do. And so, yeah, cheers to you guys on that. I know I got a little bit left here in my glass. Cheers and to you guys on that. Not that there's anything wrong with people that just want to come buy our bottles and stay at home and drink through this. That's true. There's actually an old Finnish saying for it called pants drunk. They consider it like a form of personal uh, well-being to sit at home and have a relaxing drink by yourself. Well, I don't think it's the most unhealthy thing to – maybe not remember every aspect of this pandemic. So if, <laughs> if you, if you can uh, fight away a little bit of those memories with some beautifully crafted mammoth spirits, like more power to you. There you go. Now this, I guess this is going to be on drew drew. I've got an angle for you and I didn't put it in the outline, but I think you, you're going to hit this nail on the head. Um, that as we've been talking about this, the, either the whiskey, the gin, um, these are all drinks that really, they, they they hold a deep uh, deep memories either in our heart or in our, our spirit that um, we come to these and these are the ones that we we want to enjoy with others we want to enjoy with people uh, from that like being up at deer camp and I know you've got a, a great deer camp going on up in in northern Michigan um, as much as it is like yeah you know, how much whiskey do you guys take up there that's not the question that I'm asking. The question I'm asking is how important is it to have a cocktail that holds both tradition and celebration along with it, especially at a place like deer camp? Well, you know, for, for me, it goes back to the first time I went to deer camp with, uh, over on Beaver Island. Uh, it was where deer camp used to be. And, and I was over there with, uh, with my grandpa and, uh, and my dad, and grandpa doc, uh, folks that don't know, Stuart's, Stuart's my cousin, uh, as well. And he, he was our grandpa, but you know, when I got my first deer, you know, whiskey and bourbon, that's not the type of thing at deer camp that, that we have all the time, you know, and, and definitely not before you hunt. It's always after the hunt, but usually it's beer. And, but the whiskey, the bourbon that's reserved for when maybe you get your deer. When I got my first deer at deer camp with my grandpa there, I was, well, I guess I shouldn't say this. 
Uh, maybe I wasn't 21 yet, but I was close. <laughs> and, uh, Age is all but, but a thing. You're just an old but, soul, but that, Drew. That's when you that's when you earn that glass. You know, it wasn't like you know just a, a can of old Milwaukee or something. Like this is something special. And and when we have it at Deer Camp, you know, we don't you know sit around drinking uh, bourbon and whiskey the whole time. You know, for one, you know, we want to get out there and we want to be responsible as hunters. But when you get that deer, when you get a nice deer, when it's time to celebrate. And then that's why a, a spirit like mammoth is great. You know, we're not looking to get like loaded or anything. What we want is something that tastes great, that that you can make a nice cocktail with and have a nice celebration and toast uh, to a good camp with good people. And, you know, I, I think, too, there's something to the the imagery of mammoth that speaks to us as hunters, too, because, you know, when we go out there, like I hunt with a recurve sometimes, you know, I think each one of us kind of envisions that we're some sort of like paleolithic caveman out there, you know, hunting our food, uh, maybe like a mammoth, like in the old days. And there's something just about that imagery that at least for deer camp and I think for hunters speaks to us. But, you know, with with, with a fine bourbon and, and I'm lucky that uh, that I have one of the borrowed time rides that I'm saving for deer camp this year. I was going to save it for trout camp, but that got canceled because of uh, the coronavirus uh lockdown but yeah it's 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 something that we want to celebrate with with a toast uh not something that we're gonna drink in lots of volume gotcha yeah i can i can feel those same vibes that yeah like when you when you get an animal when you put one down like there is a moment where you do have the the remorse you have the 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 period of thanks but at the same time as as that period wraps up it is a, a time of celebration. You hang it up. It's on the buck pole. And there's nothing better than to pull out the good stuff, the, the dusty bottle that's been waiting there and the one that you haven't popped the cork yet. But that's the, the symbolism of there is that, like, it's now time to celebrate. We're bringing out the good things uh, in life. Yeah, especially if you've been on the dry spell that I've been on. It's been a few years. So when I, when I put meat on the table this year, it's going to be, like, some caveman stuff. I brought home that I brought home the the woolly mammoth to the family. Yeah. Now it's like is that like a bottle like wine? Like the longer that you have this dry spell, do you have to like rotate the the bottle like every like once a year after every season that you have to eat the tag? You'd have to rotate the bottle to make sure the cork is still staying hydrated. <laughs> just making sure it just keeps taking on more flavor, right? Yeah, there you I'll, go. I'll leave that to Colin, but uh, that's my excuse. So we've come down to kind of the crescendo uh, of my of my episode here, and it's uh, my two dish breakdown. But we haven't been talking about food. We haven't talking about uh, um, things that we're eating, but we're talking about things that we're celebrating with. Um, and one of those things is this is probably for well, it could be for either Colin or for Stuart. Um, one of the things, a lot of guys, I, I like mine on the rocks. I'm not going to lie. I do like a little bit of chill in there, and I like the water to kind of help mellow it out. I'm not ready for just straight bourbon yet, um, but I do appreciate an old-fashioned. Walk us through what a mammoth's old-fashioned consists of. How do I make one of those? Well, you know, the mammoth old-fashioned, we... You know, not to toot our own horn, uh, but I'd say that we have a a real following, and I would say that we've re- received a, a decent amount of kind of kudos and credit for for 
our recipe, you know, I think obviously the spirit <laughs> goes a long way. So the fact that, you know, our whiskey bourbon and rye is so top notch, uh, lends itself to a really nice taste profile, but we also, we also go, you know, more of a classic route where, you know, I think that the, the old fashioned in general kind of got lost where, you know, people were kind of taking their own riff on it and there wasn't a lot of consistency in the drink. And, and we really kind of went back to basics. So, I mean, essentially on our old fashioned, you know, we do it in a small rocks glass. You, you're starting with two ounces of bourbon and we've got, uh, essentially a quarter ounce of simple syrup, uh, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and we're essentially muddling, muddling that and straining it over ice. Um, and then we are kind of flaming the citrus of the uh, orange peel, you know, to just give it that last little finishing touch. Nice. I like the, yeah, char in the orange. That's a good deal. I know a mutual friend of of Drew and I's, uh, um, Mikoff, he was already uh, posting on his that he's got a lot of bald oranges just hanging out at his house right now. So I think he's he's leaning heavy on the on the old fashions uh, in the evening. His his celebratory cocktails never have to wait as long as mine. And that, that guy puts meat on the table consistently. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Has he got a turkey yet? I don't know if he's got a turkey yet. I haven't seen any posts yet. Um, the second one is actually, I'm going to back up. Um, cause one of those things that you mentioned is bitters, Stuart in, in the, uh, um, the old fashioned, I don't know where to find bitters. Maybe it's oh, cause well, I don't I mean, go to the store very often, but anyway, where do I, I find mean, Angos, bitters? Angostura bitters in particular, I mean, they've just kind of bit become a, you know, a universal staple for cocktail making. So you can get Angostura bitters at Meyer. I mean, you can get them at, you know, Tom's market. Uh, you know, we do use some, you know, we've got a, uh, a drink on the menu or before all this started, uh, the Canadian tuxedo, which, uh, actually Colin's younger, younger sister designed for us years ago. And we use walnut bitters for that drink. That's something that you gotta, you know, order, you know, maybe a specialty shop, but, you know, traditional Angostura bitters is probably what you're going to use cocktail making 99% of the time, and you can really pick them up anywhere. Gotcha. The other question I had before we jump on to our, our last question here, um, but I was told by another friend of mine that rye whiskey isn't really a whiskey. It's just considered a rye because it's just rye that's that's in the mash. And that might go to Colin. Am, am I correct on, or is he correct on that? Or am I telling him he's full of BS and that it's still a whiskey? It's definitely still a whiskey. I mean, you can, you can, you can make whiskey from any type of grain that you want. Whiskey is a very broad, undefined term that just classifies a grain-based spirit that's aged in a barrel. Um, like we were talking about bourbon before, um, you know, it can get more defined than that, but, and you can, you can take rye and you can turn rye into vodka, but rye is definitely a category of whiskey for sure. Good. So you can call it BS on that one. Good. I, I'm glad. I'm glad he's a Packers fan. So anytime I can call yeah, BS. Yeah, we don't like that. <laughs> 
All right. This last one here is summer is just around the corner. And by the time that this is going to be coming out, it'll be late May. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be really looking forward, forward to some bonfires and some gatherings once everything has been lifted. And I hope, pray to the Lord, that everything gets lifted here soon. Um, but when we are able to then join friends and family around a, a, a campfire, what is your favorite cocktail that you're going to want to have? And we'll go, we'll go all the way around. We'll start with Colin because he's, he's on my screen right now. Colin, what's going to be your favorite celebratory uh, cocktail? Um, probably my, my cocktail of summer for celebrating is uh, Hemingway daiquiri. I'm a, I'm a sucker for, for a really, really good classic daiquiri. Not, not your frozen blended daiquiri, but a, but a real nice crafted daiquiri. Tell, tell us what goes into that. So Hemingway daiquiri, um, obviously a nice, nice base of rum. Usually it's clear rum, but I like to use an aged rum. Um, being a distiller um, and very into whiskeys, I, I usually opt for things with a little bit more barrel character to it. Um, it's a base of rum, um, a little bit of pine or uh, excuse me, a little bit of grapefruit juice, um, a Italian liqueur called Luxardo, um, that's defined as a Marchino liqueur, um, but it's nothing like Marchino cherries, um, lime and sugar. Awesome, that does sound good. It's got Super it's good. hitting you from all sides on that one. Yeah, yeah. If it's good enough for Hemingway, it's it's good enough for me, man. <laughs> Stuart, what is going to be your summer cocktail that you are enjoying? I tell you what, I still think, you know, it, it doesn't get as much love as it deserves is our gin and tonic is just, is just bomb. I mean, our, our gin, you know, the aromatics, the taste profile, uh, coupled with, you know, Northwood's, you know, pure tonic is, as I just think, you know, classically underrated uh we do ours really special now where the actual gin and tonic gets a specific uh special glass we do it in a beer stein and we actually do juniper berries uh with dehydrated um uh limes and oranges you know we try to use uh what the actual ingredients of the gin and tonic you know as the garnishment so you know, as boring as it sounds, you know, I think people should should give the, the classic mammoth gin and tonic a, a try this summer. Drew, what is going to be your summertime cocktail? Well, if we get to have a, a trout camp again, maybe later on in the year. Um, Boone's I, I, Farm is not a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it'll, it'll probably be that uh, that that borrowed time rye. Um, you know, mixed up with, with maybe just a, a little bit of the, of the King's Farms, uh, cherry concentrate and a little bit of burners, maybe, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a mixologist myself, so I got to keep it simple and keep it Michigan, but I gotta, I gotta tell you, building on that Hemingway theme, uh, you know, in trout camp, he had a quote from when he was camping out in the Pigeon River country with his buddies, uh, about a hundred years ago. And he said, picture us on the Barrens, beside the river with a campfire in the tent and the full moon and a good meal in our bellies, smoking a pill and with a good bottle of grog, there will be some good singing. And, and to me, that that's what spirits are. It's uh, around the campfire with your buddies and uh, 
some good singing, celebrating by the river. So I can't well, really I, bring a whole bar in there, but I think simple like that. I think Colin's got some grog on the uh, horizon, maybe that we'll we'll release uh, in the near future. <laughs> oh man, that sounds like it's got kick. The fact that it's grog, like that sounds. <laughs> what would go? What goes into grog, Colin? Yikes! I have no idea. He has no <laughs> idea. <laughs> Sounds hearty. <laughs> Straight ethanol and maybe like, a little bit of dirt. That's probably what it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like you got to have a little hair on your chest to knock down the frog. I guess if I'm gonna I'm gonna round it out, I'm gonna go with I guess the the cocktail that really has made the biggest impression on me, and that's that whiskey tango foxtrot. Just having the whiskey, uh, throwing in the pineapple juice a sprig of rosemary and that surprise of jalapeno. Like if I think I, if I make four of those up and pass those out to some friends and family, they are going to just get blown away and just be like, yes, we're going to stick around the fire more. And, and this is going to be one of those next conversations that we're going to be able to talk about. Um, gentlemen, this has just been a wonderful time. Um, Colin, the, the main distiller. Thank you so much. Um, I know Stuart's going to help us out. Stuart, where, where can more folks find out information about Mammoth and how can they get a hold of your stuff? Well, I mean, the easiest is mammothdistilling.com. Uh, you know, we've got tasting rooms in Central Lake, Bel Air, uh, Traverse City currently. Uh, you know, uh, we are looking to open by July a tasting room in Bay Harbor. Uh, you know, a little bit with uh, the pandemic. You know, that's a somewhat on hold, but we will be opening a tasting room in Adrian, Michigan, down in southern Michigan by the end of the summer. Um, so, you know, I always say that, you know, you're going to get the best deal on our spirits in the tasting room. Um, you know, the staff is usually more than willing and, and able to, to steer you in the right direction. You can get a little bit more of the, the in-depth uh, kind of answers that people are looking for in the tasting room. But, you know, we are distributed throughout the state. Uh, we're distributed, you know, currently in Wisconsin. Um, you know, so one of the things that I don't think people realize is, you know, Michigan is a state where the state controls, uh, you know, essentially the alcohol. So anybody can go into any liquor store in their community and ask the, the person running it to order Mammoth Spirits. Um, and you know, it's really easy. They go right into the book and, and we, what we've tried to do on the website is we do have a list of stores that do carry us throughout the state. So people can kind of, uh, um, you know, not have to look around a lot, but you know, that's kind of my new go-to is, you know, if, if you want something we have and you can't find it, just, you know, let your liquor store know that you want it and, and they're going to order it because you're going to pay for it. Awesome. I love that. Drew, thanks for uh, being our liaison, getting everybody connected. And uh, again, yeah, just a pleasure to be able to, to talk to you and your insight. Um, so yeah, again, thanks for, for jumping on uh, with us. Folks don't know, I've been tagging along with Stuart for like 40 years now. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, fellas, hold on for just a second. I'm going to send our listeners on out. Folks, uh, again, this is episode 50, and I think this is something that, that I'd really like to celebrate with you. Uh, so I hope that you're able to uh, get that short rocks glass. Put something real nice and strong. Uh, ice if you choose. I'm, I'm still on the ice. But whatever the cocktail is, always keep your knives 
Shark.